Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. I'm sure you're wondering, where is Adam and who is this guy? I get it. He left very big shoes to fill and one person alone can't replace them. We'll have a growing team you'll see here over the next few weeks. I'm excited to be part of that. The goal of Wealthion remains the same, to empower you to make the best financial decisions for you and your family. A little bit about myself. I've been in and around economics my entire life, starting with my parents, who were both tax accountants. I studied economics in college and worked as a professional investor on Wall Street before becoming a financial news reporter on business television. More importantly, though, I've got four kids with a fifth on the way. I am very concerned about what the future will look like for them. How expensive will college be? Will the economy be in shambles, buried under a mountain of debt and massive taxes? Will inflation eat away at our purchasing power? Will the economy support good jobs for all of us to thrive? I care deeply about the same issues you do, and I'm proud to be part of the team advancing Wealthy on Forward. In the coming days, I'll be joining this journey with you, giving you the chance to tap into insights, knowledge, and expertise with leading experts in finance and economics. You'll see us experiment with things. You'll find some guests you're familiar with, and maybe some fresh faces as well. Stay tuned, and thank you for being here. And okay, with all that being said, let's jump right into today's conversation. Joining me today is Kenny Polkari. He's Chief Market Strategist at Slatestone Wealth. We're going to talk about the latest jobs data, where inflation is headed. Is the Fed still hiking or preparing to cut? And are they making a mistake? Kenny and I, we go way back many years to our CNBC days. And we're so glad. I'm glad we get to do this on Wealthy, all right? Because we have more time, right? CNBC, yeah. it's, you know, an eternity if you get three minutes, right? right. But, but here, we can measure this on a different scale. And I think we can really dig in to some of these topics. So I appreciate you because Kenny's, Kenny's one of my favorite chatters about the markets. You're thinking through all of these things. You got, you know, notes every day here. We'll talk about your, your channels at the end where, where people can find you because you got the videos and, and the sub stack and everything. So, you know, the first question, Kenny, thanks of course for being here. Are the bulls just ignoring too much negative data? Right, we saw the sharp downturn last week. Then, boom, it's popping back up. It feels like there's too much negative data, and they're just putting a blindfold on. So, so I think certainly they were last week, right? But don't forget, the week before, there had been all this geopolitical angst. Had been angst in the economic data. Markets had started breaking technical levels. When that happens, the algos start to feed on each other and end up pushing the market even lower. And long-term investors and people who see that happening, they just kind of step aside. They don't disappear. They just move themselves down to lower levels. And then you see the market come under pressure. But it got to the point the week before forward was really overdone, right? That once we break those technical levels, the algos send wave after wave of sell orders into the market and the buy side knows this and the buy side algorithms know this. And so any human being can see it happening. And so really in those situations, the buyer's one was in control because the sellers are so anxious, right? Last week, what we saw was the complete opposite. The market had gotten to an, a, a short-term oversold condition the week before over the week you know, we went into the weekend all this nervousness around what's going to happen in the mid-east monday morning nothing new happened it wasn't like it's not a disaster it's still a disaster but it wasn't an elevated disaster on monday morning and then suddenly they started all talking about jay powell was going to come out and announce that he was going to pause and halt and wasn't going to raise rates anymore and jenny yellen was going to bring less 
treasuries to the market than what originally everyone expected, blah, blah, blah. And it created uh, it created a short-term bounce, right? And then just as we saw the algos go all in on the sell side, you saw them and it was vicious the way they went all in on the buy side. Uh, and they took the market up. That was up sixteen or 1,700 points alone last week. You know, the S&P was up 5%. The Russell was up 8%. The transfer was up 7.5%. Those were big weekly moves, but they were because it was a, part of it was a boomerang reaction from the oversold condition. But I think what you're going to see this week is the market then once again settle down and reconsider what the narrative really is. That whole narrative that Jay's going to not only pause, but he's going to not only not raise rates, but now they're going to start cutting rates even sooner than what everyone expected is kind of also what fueled that move last week. And I think you're going to see that tone change uh, this week when Jay Powell speaks on Thursday uh, and people really start to understand what uh, what it means to the credit markets, to the bond markets, when Treasury Secretary Yellen brings $112 billion worth of treasuries this week alone, and then another, you know, $560 billion over the next five weeks, and then another $860 billion in the first quarter of 2024. So, yes, I think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of this excitement back and forth, um, and I think a lot of it is driven by, by the technology, more so maybe than... The, than the human beings being out of touch. But I do think that, uh, uh, the, you know, the short-term the short term dislocation created then that short-term move in, in stocks. Talk about the algos. You mentioned them a few times, the technology. How is someone observing from the outside supposed to figure out, is this market move a move because people have made a decision, right? People like right. Kenny and Eric have made a decision versus this is an algorithm. You said the algos were the ones making this. How do you know it's the algorithms and, and not a normal person? And how could a normal person know who's making these trades? Okay, so so you have to, part of it is, you know, as you know, I've been doing this for 42 years, right? So part of it is just the sixth sense of what's going on in the markets. But the average person, the average retail investor is not necessarily going to be that attuned to it. A, because they're not sitting in front of their computer all day long. They don't have the same experience as I do. They don't have the same sense, right? But when you see the market like it did the week before when, when we, the market came under pressure, there were certainly plenty of comments. And, and in my daily market commentary, I kept pointing it out. You know, if we hit this technical level and pierce it, then you're going to watch a wave of sell orders initiated by algorithms be flooded into the market. And then if we trade down and we hit this next technical breakpoint, the same thing is going to happen. Because a lot of these algorithms are designed and built around, you know, technical uh, indicators, right? Technical levels are built into the algorithm. So as the market either tests and or breaks those levels, it just causes a wave of, uh, of orders to be automatically generated by the algorithms. On a, on, a, on a daily basis, not so much. But when you saw the market come under pressure the way it did two weeks ago and then come under the upside pressure last week, a lot of that was technology driven. You could tell by the speed and the way at which these stocks traded down and then traded right back up, right? Those, you don't see moves like that on a regular basis. Human beings don't take the Russell up 7% in, in a week. Now, human beings were certainly part of the process. A lot of them got all excited because the market was up, so they all jump in and they all want to be on board. The same way they jump in when the market's under pressure. They get nervous. They get anxious. Oh, my God, Apple's down 15%. What am I going to do? i got to sell my Apple. That, completely the wrong decision to make, and you and I both know that, right? That, that, that's a much more emotional trade. But as a long-term investor, though, that's the stuff you have to eliminate. And you have to, uh, you know, sometimes you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable 
um, and guys that uh, traders or investors that you know were able to uh, to methodically buy stock in the down market certainly got rewarded last week when they saw when they saw all this stuff rally strongly. Do you put more emphasis? Do you put more stock in sort of the human based trades versus the algo trades? Right? Do you find that the algo trades they're more of a whipsaw? They're more volatility, or do you need to? Do you need to respect them? Like, how do you? How much credence do you give them? Well, listen. You have to respect it because a lot of the action that that takes place in the markets these days is really technology driven, right? Let's 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 not let's say it for what it is, and let's not pretend it doesn't exist. The technology that exists today is really behind kind of a lot of the action that takes place in the markets. But as an investor, as a human being that's sitting down, you have to be able to eliminate some of that noise. And while it's difficult to do that all the time. What you have to do as a long-term investor is you got to kind of look at what you own, look at why you own it, look at where you own it, and pick spots that no matter what happens, you're happy to buy it and or sell it if that's the case um, based on your own analysis. And if the algo takes it there, uh, then you have to be willing to make your decision. Now, that doesn't mean you can't say, look, I was willing to buy Apple at 175 and suddenly you see the algorithms just just blowing Apple up. That doesn't mean as a human being, you can't say, okay, let me just pull back a little bit because I think instead of paying 175, I'm going to be able to buy these at 170. Why wouldn't I want to buy it $5 cheaper than where I originally thought if I can see that coming, right? And so you have to respect the algorithms because that's partly how the, how the market operates today. But that doesn't mean that you as a human being should just like take the brain out of your head and say, okay, I'm going to do X if this happens and why, if that happens, you have to be a little bit more dynamic. You can't be so static. I am very confused and maybe you can help me. Are we in a good economy right now or in a bad economy? And then we're going to get into, <laughs> should the Fed, it really gets, is, should the Fed really be trying to cut rates so soon? Because I'm looking at wage inflation data that still persists. I'm looking at inflation all over the place yep. and I'm seeing a lot of problems and I'm, and I'm nervous. Are they making a mistake? Well, first of all, the Fed hasn't come out to said they're cutting rates. It's the market. It's the Fed fund futures. It's the trader types that are betting the Fed is going to cut rates. Jay Powell has made it very clear that he's gotten rates to a level. And whether this is the level or up another 25 basis points, I mean, it's right in here. But when he gets it to whatever level he feels comfortable at, that he's made it very clear that they're going to stay higher for longer. Now, to me and you, higher for longer is not two or three months or four or five months even, to me, higher for longer is, you know, 12 months, 15 months, 18 months. That's higher for longer. The, the, this idea that the Fed's going to start to cut rates in the spring of 2024, I mean, that's literally less than six months from now, and they're not even done, finished, potentially raising them, and they're already talking about the Fed cutting them. So that, to me, makes zero sense. But here's the other, here's the other thing that people should understand. If you really think the Fed is going to cut rates in the spring of 2024, then what you're also saying is that you expect the economy to fall right off the edge and for it to get so difficult in the economy that the Fed is going to need to stimulate the economy. I don't think that's the case. I, I, listen, I think we're going to have, I don't think we have a soft landing. I think we are going to have a bumpy landing. I think it's going to, I think it's going to bump along the bottom there for a while. Um, 
I think we're going to see an increase in unemployment. We've already we saw that tick up last Friday at the uh, non-farm payroll report. It's still at three point nine percent, which is historically low. But there are a lot of analysts and economists out there that are suggesting we need to see unemployment have a five handle on it before the Fed is going to succeed getting inflation down to two percent. And if that's the case, and Jay Powell doesn't dispute that, um, and if that's the case, then there's going to be more. There's going to be the economy's going to get you know more challenging. I like the way you said that. If you think the Fed is going to be cutting rates in six months, then that means you're betting on a real collapse right here. Right. Because the Fed, the Fed would not be cutting rates if there wasn't going to be a coming collapse. That's the only reason they cut rates is to try to stop that bleed. But look, here's the other thing that a lot of people, it's amazing to me, right? Let's just put it in perspective. I'm 62, so I've been doing this for 40 years. And so I've, I've lived this whole these whole four decades in the market, 5% treasury yield is actually the normal rate. The 16 years that we just went through that had rates at zero, where this whole generation of investors thought that zero was normal, they're the ones that have to understand that was not normal. Actually, where we are today at five and a quarter, five and a half percent is mostly normal. Right. And markets can function with a treasury at five and a half percent. What's so what's so intimidating about this time is because for 16 years, treasuries were offering zero returns. And so people had no choice. Now they're suddenly offering five percent returns and all these investors are going, oh, my God, I can put my money in treasuries and I can and it can be stable. and I don't have to worry about anything. That's great. And you should do that if you're worried. But don't forget for for a whole lot of years, when I was a younger when I was a younger man, the market did just fine with treasuries in the four to six percent range. That's a good reminder, right? Like there's a generation of people that only know zero percent, right? Think That's about right. if you're let's call it, let's say fifteen years, right? Let's say you graduated college anytime in the last fifteen years. Anyone who's thirty seven and under has been working. That's a big generation of people. They've in never a zero rate environment. That. Right. In a zero rate environment. Look, you know, and, and, you know, my daughter graduated college. My youngest daughter graduated college in 2012. Right. So we were well into the crisis. But by then, rates were already zero for four years. Right. Right. They remained zero for another 11 years. And so think about the people that graduated college in, like you said, in 2006 or seven, right at the very beginning of that crisis, when rates were at 5%, they went to zero and they stayed there for 16 years. And these people have had 16 years worth of an education in the markets. Great. But, but, it's, been a, but it's been a stilted education because they're thinking, well, this is normal. This is, this is how you invest in a zero rate environment. Well, you know, when I was 19 years old, rates were 21%. Unemployment was 13% and inflation was running at 10%. That certainly wasn't a normal environment, right? But, uh, but I, you know, I was just getting out of college when that happened. So I lived through three or four years of really high rates. And then they started to get cut and come down. And then they were five, between four and 6% for a good 30 years. And then they were zero for, you know, 16. Is it fair to say, though, is it fair to say that market experts, if you look at these Fed fund futures, market experts are predicting a severe economic collapse, right? Is, well, is that what we're implying in these Fed rates? Well, the ones who are predicting it are really Fed fund futures traders. It's not necessarily analysts and economists that are predicting that 
right? It's the Fed fund futures market, which is really driven by what the traders think, the, where the traders think the market is going. So, you know, those people are betting that rates are going to get cut. So, yes, I guess what they're saying by default is they expect the market, the, the economy to markedly slow, which is the only reason the Fed would be cutting rates. If the markets, if the economy stays, you know, as robust as Janet Yellen and, 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 and the rest of them would like to tell us, like us to believe that it is, then there's absolutely zero reason for the Fed to cut rates at all. They'd stay, they'd keep it right here, just like Jay Powell has said, that they're going to remain higher for longer. But if the Fed fund futures guys are betting that rates are going to get cut, and this morning I heard some guy on, uh, some guy on, the, on, uh, on the radio this morning said he expects the Fed to cut rates by 200 basis points. That means go from five and a quarter back to three and a quarter. I'm scratching my head going, dude, if they cut rates by 200 basis points, the shit is going to hit the fan. Then we we are in a bad then we are in a bad environment. Correct. Something bad, something really bad happened really quickly. Correct. Now look, if it happens slowly, if the market kind of runs into difficulties slowly, and it doesn't, if if it goes down as fast as it went up, then then you're gonna have a really tough time. But if it goes down and it kind of meanders its way and it's struggling, it's here and there, the markets will adjust, right? The markets can adjust. The markets can operate in a in a in a you know in a in a difficult economy, they'll just operate at different valuations, right? Which is why the prices change. What do you think about some of the earnings data that we saw? Quarter three, I would say good earnings, but it wasn't so much on the revenue side. It's sort of good profitability. We're seeing a lot of cost cutting and efficiency, but we're really seeing a lot of fourth quarter expectation cuts, forecast cuts. Does that play into, oh, we are about to see impending doom? Okay, so that's exactly the point, right? Because while they like to tell you that this quarter, this earnings season, oh, they've been 75% of the companies that beat on the top line and the bottom line, guess what? That's history. That's earnings that already happened. You really had to pay attention to what the guidance is. And if you listened, the guidance for a lot of companies was not so robust. Apple being only the latest. Big mega cat company telling them, you know, telling the world that, look, we expect slower iPhone sales this Christmas, which, by the way, I just don't believe. But that's OK. Let them say it. That's fine. Um, but we heard that from a bunch of other companies as well, where they're much more cautious. They're not sounding the alarm bells and saying, you know, quick, I'm sinking. But they are saying we're much more cautious. And I think that um, was lost a little bit in uh, in has been being lost in some of the trading and conversation because they're trying to drown it out by saying the Fed's going to save everybody by cutting rates sooner than expected. You mentioned in your note the other day, I guess it must have been data from Redfin, home sellers, yeah. they're, they're getting a little panicky, they're cutting prices, they want to dump because they think there's a recession coming, they want to get out of that house, get that paycheck now while they can. Okay, and so that's exactly the point, right? We've been we've been watching as rates go higher and higher. You know the cost of money, uh, right? Now it was a year and a half ago. Was, you could get a three percent thirty year mortgage. So you're getting an eight percent thirty year mortgage, right? So the cost of capital has gone up dramatically, and so now they're saying, yeah, but sellers have. Let me pause. The, the idea that let's say, like, if if you or me had a mortgage, right, that I could borrow money at three percent, being a random person. Yeah was better a better rate than what the U.S. government now can borrow from anybody, right? We could borrow at a better rate despite our junky credit and our inability to, inability to like tax people. We Correct. could borrow at 3%, but now the federal government of the United States can't even borrow that well. That's right, right. They're borrowing at 5 and a 5.5% yeah. at the moment, right? But one way or the other, 
mortgage costs have gone up, and I actually think they're going to continue to go up, right? I don't think mortgage rates are, are coming down substantially by any stretch. No matter what happened last week, they said 30-year bonds came down 54 base points. That's right. Today, they're up 10 basis points, and they'll probably be, you know, they're going to inch their way back up as we move forward and go through this. But now what you're seeing is suddenly, it's also, listen, let's not, let's be honest. It is November, which is a seasonally weak time of year. But I think what you're starting to see is you're starting to see sellers who in their mind said, my house is worth X, and I don't care what you say, that's what my house is worth, because that's, you know, how everyone gets married to the house. And they right. think it's worth more, maybe more than it is. Your house is really only worth as much as the buyer is willing to pay you. Not what you think it's worth, because who's going to pay you that, right? And so what, what you're finding now is that with rates up higher, people start to talk about the economy slowing down, is that you have some of these guys that have been on the fence, some of these homeowners that have been on the fence, thinking that the house prices will continue to go higher, are now recognizing that maybe they're not. Their house is on the market, and it's not getting... And bids in 24 hours. You'd be lucky if it's getting one bid in a week, right? So start Redfin, and Redfin reveals that they're starting to see price cuts across the board, that sellers are becoming more realistic and understanding that the cost of money has gone up. And so therefore, it's more difficult for uh, the average American to buy at the elevated prices. So at some point, it's going to happen. You're going to see housing prices come down. doesn't mean they're necessarily going to crash, but they certainly have to come down from these lofty levels because they're trading. Houses now are trading at six times what the average American income is, right? In 1980, they were trading at three times the average American income. Today, they're trading at six times. And, 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 and mortgage rates are high. And so, therefore, prices are going to have to start to come down. And so I think that's like a canary in the coal mine. What Redfin revealed today is that they're starting to see sellers cut their prices. Do you think it's possible that the Fed, by keeping rates higher for longer, will cause a recession or cause a crash? Because of higher rates means, oh, housing is now unaffordable. Higher rates means unemployment is going up. Higher rates cause all these problems. Is it almost like like what you said, hey, you've got to expect a real crash if you think this is what the Fed's going to do later. But is it possible that the Fed's current actions are what causes the crash? I, I, I think 100%. I, I think 100%. That, now listen, the Fed's also in a position, A, where they kept rates too low for way too long, because we know that in 2021, when, when the CPI jumped from 1.6 to 3.1 in one month, and the Fed told us, no, nah, don't worry, it's transitory. We had nothing to worry about. We're in control. That was bullshit because then for another nine months, they did nothing to go straight up. But don't forget, Jay Powell is also in a position to be reappointed. So, you know, he was trying to he was trying to play both sides of the fence. Had he started raising rates, he potentially was going to lose his reappointment, right? The minute he was reappointed, guess what they started to do? They started to raise rates. The minute he was reappointed, they started to raise rates, right? So now they allowed it to go on for too long. We saw inflation go up to 9.4% in the CPI, 11.1% on the PPI. Uh, and then they started cutting rates. So they waited way too long on the other end. Now I think they're going to wait way too long on this end. And yes, they're ultimately going to force a recession. But part of this is also that Joe Biden and the Biden administration has spent money like drunken sailors and apparently has no intention of slowing down. And so the Fed is in a position to have to support that. And Janet Yellen came out last week telling us, okay, this is what it's going to cost us, guys. And here you go. With, this, is, this is going to be the next part of that conversation is when she starts to bring these treasuries to the market, 
Who's going to stand there to buy these treasuries, considering China, who's been a big buyer, is now a net seller. Japan's been a big buyer, now a net seller. The Fed was a big buyer during quantitative easing, is now a net seller because of quantitative tightening. So who's going to stand around and buy all this crap that's coming to the market? There'll be buyers, but there aren't going to be buyers that are willing to pay 98 cents on the dollar. They'll pay 90, they'll pay 85. That's what they'll pay. The buyers aren't going to run away. They're just going to take advantage of the, of the anxiety that's going to take place. The same way they do in stocks, the same way they do in housing, right? When suddenly you put your house on the market and nobody comes to buy it, then you cut the price, you cut the price, you cut the price. Suddenly there's five buyers because you cut it to a price that is suddenly value. Would you recommend a normal person buying some of these treasuries if all of a sudden China doesn't want it, the Fed doesn't want it, Japan doesn't want it, should normal you and me and Joe the plumber be buying those treasuries that, that the smart guys don't want? Well, so listen, if it, you know, you could see prices fall so much that yields suddenly spike up to six, seven, eight, nine percent. You could see that. And if yields on treasuries jump to nine percent, you're going to see a lot of people take money out of the stock market and buy treasuries and lock in nine percent rates. 9% rates, the same way they did. Now, again, this is a little bit, uh, it's a little bit exaggerated, but people that are listening to this were not around in 1979, 1980, the last time this happened, when, when, when CPI was sticky, uh, Paul Volcker was then Fed chair, thought that CPI was, was uh, coming in. They paused, they waited, CPI turned up its ugly head, it got really ugly, Paul Volcker was forced to raise rates, to jam rates higher, to absolutely bring the economy to a stop. They set the economy into a two-year spinning recession. Rates went up to 21%, and the stock market sold off big. Because if you were anyone who had any money at all, you could take your money and go to the bank and give your money to the banker, and he's going to put it in a CD, and you're going to earn 20% riskless, guaranteed sleep at night. No risk, no, no economic risk, no dividend risk, no, you know, who's buying my crap, none of that. You're going to put it in the bank and you earn 20% guaranteed. And so, so today, because we started at zero, so if suddenly treasury yields start yielding 7, 8, 9%, you're going to see a lot of people say, you know what, screw it. I don't want the risk. Maybe I'm too old. Listen, a 20-year-old should never do that. A 20 or 30-year-old should be all in. But a 60-year-old or a 55-year-old that's getting nervous, is getting closer to retirement, that's not sure, that doesn't have the time to make it up, would absolutely take money out of the market and put it in treasuries that are going to yield 9%. 9%! Consistent sleep at night, never worry. Right? It, you know, it's, it's an intriguing. I've had a lot of conversations with people recently that keep looking at that. So, hey, you know, where the 10-year is, where the 30 years, and it's starting to inch to the point where it's like, I can just put everything in that and get a guaranteed return for something on the order of decades, and I don't have to worry about it. Except, okay, but that's except what they did. Eats Inflation eats those returns. Okay, but that's what they did in 1978, 79, right. 80, and 81. I was just graduating college, and yeah, you know, I was in college 1980 to 83, right? When rates were when rates were high. I bought my first house in 1983 at a 15.5% mortgage on it. 15.5%. Right, which I thought was, and that was down from higher rates, I think 17%. I got 15.5%. I was like, oh my God, I got a 15.5% mortgage. I won the lottery. Because that's what it felt like, right? Yeah, it doesn't and feel then, like that now, right? 
Right, but then Paul Volcker came out in 1983 and made that announcement and started cutting rates, and next thing you know, interest rates and mortgage rates and everything went back to normal, and then you refinance at lower rates, and it was a big win-win, right? Because that's what it was. What, what do you expect, mentioning Jerome Powell, he's talking later this week. Do you expect him to say anything interesting, anything that gives insights into where the direction is going forward? Not after what he, he – listen, he just spoke last week. They just came out with the Fed announcement last week. He spent 45 minutes in front of everybody, you know, talking in circles, telling them how the, the, the door is open. Maybe the door is going to be closed. No, they're going to leave the door open. Yes, they're going to hold rates where they are, but maybe not. And if the, and, and, and if the data continues to be sticky, then we have the option to go higher. If it doesn't, we have it. So he, you know, he was playing both sides of the fence, talking out of both ends. And I suspect he's going to do the same thing again on Thursday because he cannot come out and definitively say, okay, we're done, we're, that's it, rates aren't going up anymore, and we're cutting rates. He can't say that. CPI and PPI is due out next week. And I th next Thursday and Friday, the 13th, 14th and 15th, I think, of the days, right? CPI first and PPI. And so if those numbers come out higher than they were last month, which I think they're going to, right, uh, that's going to suggest that inflation is sticky. And guess where it's sticky? It's sticky where you and I need it the most. And for a man who's got four kids and another one on the way, you have to worry about diapers and baby powder, uh, uh, baby formula and food and your utility bill and turning your lights on and heating your house, right? You don't have, you don't, Care if the price of a used car has come down 20%, you can't eat a used car and neither can your kids. You, you worry about what's the price of chicken, what's the price of hamburgers, what's the price of steak, what's the price of fish, what's the price of rice, what's the price of eggs and butter and milk and yogurt. All that stuff that's important to you and quite honestly important to me as well. Right? And important to everyday Americans. That's the stuff where it's sticky. It's not sticky in, you know, laptop computers. Great. Used cars. Wonderful. What are you going to do with them? You can't. That's the point. Right. Right. You, I want to touch on something. You mentioned the politics of it, right? Powell waited for his renomination, got confirmed, then started hiking rates. How much do you think politics plays a role in? in the decisions that they make, even though it's supposed to be an independent body? I think the chairman always plays a role because I think everybody on the committee ultimately ends up deferring to the chairman. I, I don't think, unless everyone on the committee is voting no, and he's the only one voting yes, then I think it would be difficult. But I think for the most part, the committee does what the committee does. They debate, but then they all line up and get behind the chairman. Occasionally, they'll put one or two out there to show, to, to show dissension just to pretend that it wasn't completely unanimous and there's some concern. But for the most part, I think the whole thing is orchestrated. And I think they all get behind the chairman. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's what they should do, right? Instead of showing a fractured, uh, a fractured uh, committee or one that the one that doesn't understand or one that at, is at odds with each other. I think, you know, having uh, having one or two dissents on the committee, you know, makes it look all legitimate. But I think for the most part, they, they line up behind the chairman. And, and what about the politics, though, as it relates to the Treasury Department, Congress, the actual D.C. elected officials? Because you said, right, Powell didn't want to get too, too alarmist while he was going through his process, but now they've got free reign. But how much do you think they're working with, okay, we know Yellen's got to issue these treasuries, so we don't want to rate – Jack rates up so much that it hurts her. We know that the government is overspending. Like you said, they're overspending like there's no tomorrow, but how do we coordinate that? 
Well, I, I, and I think that's part of the problem. And I think that it's difficult to coordinate it because Jay Powell has been very clear. And, and we've all seen, including the government, including the administration, including Congress, that, that inflation has has risen and has, you know, rose substantially. Now they've, they've pulled it back, but it's stuck right in this three, three and a half percent range. Um, I think it's, I think, I think they're at odds, right? Because I think you have Congress trying to, you know, spend money and provide all these benefits and, you know, try to be, they, they're, they're all trying to get reelected. So they're all trying to do the right thing. Meanwhile, it puts Jay Powell in, and then the Fed kind of in a difficult position. But look, Jay, the Fed is supposed to remain agnostic, right? They're not supposed to be political. They're supposed to just operate so that so they're not supposed to care what happens to the government if rates go up or down. All they know is their job is to try to try to bring some semblance to the economy by trying to control rates and control uh, employment and all that stuff. What the administration does, on the other hand, um, might fly in the face of what the Fed wants. But clearly, I think if you want my opinion, that's exactly what we've seen over the last three years is that is that they, they don't really care. They, the, the administration and the Congress doesn't really care. They're spending money like drunken sales no matter what happens. What, what is the, the number one question you're getting right now, just from normal people? Right? Normal people that say, hey, I know, Kenny, you're in the markets, and I'm confused because they're wondering all these same things, but they don't have the answer. Is it a lot of – remember like a couple of years ago, it was all about the I-bonds, right? Now it's, oh, should I put it all in treasuries or do I stay in the markets? What are you getting on a personal level people wondering about? So listen, I'm now I've left the institutional brokerage side, and now I am on the retail ultra not, the high net worth and ultra high net worth side of the business, right? So I do talk to clients all day, and I talk to regular people as well as people that have you know a fair amount of money to invest. And so people are concerned and they are wondering, and do I take you know do I take my money out? I had one guy last week, you know, two weeks ago when the market was under pressure, who couldn't take it anymore, right? This guy's 62 years old, uh, he's in the market, he couldn't. Take take the pressure anymore. And he called me up. He said, just get me out. And I tried to explain to him, you're making an emotional decision. This was the Friday, uh, before the Friday, a week ago, right before last week when the market rallied. And I said to him, listen, listen to me. Everything you own in your portfolio is first class. It's mega names in the sectors that you own. So it's consumer staples, it was industrials, it was some technology, it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was aerospace and defense. But, but he owned the biggest names in those sectors, yet it was all coming under pressure the way it does, and he couldn't take it anymore. So he said to me, I want out. I want out. I just want to put my money in treasuries and cash equivalents. I can leave it there. So I said, all right. I did what he asked me to do after I told him I thought he was being a little bit emotional. And in fact, then last Friday, he calls me up and he said, did I make a mistake? I go, listen, you didn't make a mistake if it allows you to sleep at night. No, you didn't make a mistake. If you couldn't sleep because of what was happening in the market, then you absolutely didn't make a mistake. Then you shouldn't be in the market. Then you should be in treasuries and you should be fine. But, you know, I did try to explain to him when that happened. And so those are the kind of calls I get. But I will tell you, I, the calls I'm getting from younger investors is I want to be a buyer. These names, are, these names are dislocated. I want to be a buyer. And I think that's the right answer. They're not saying I want to buy, you know, these obscure micro cap names. They want to be a buyer, but they want to buy name, big names, big market cap names that they know, you know, may come under some pressure, but they're not going to, you know, Johnson & Johnson or Apple or Amazon or J.P. Morgan or Bank of America. Those are, those are huge quality names in the sectors that they're in. Where are they going? 
Apple just earned $90 billion in three months. Multiply that by four. That's $360 billion that they made. Where's Apple going? I mean, is it, is it, is it going belly up tomorrow? I don't think so. They'll, they'll be the last company left behind. It, it's interesting. Right? Younger people want to be buyers, but, but we're in this longer term. Let's say, okay, Horizon, right? You got 20, 30, 40 years for these younger buyers. S&P at 4,300, let's call it, 4,400. Still very expensive, still very high. If they want to be buyers, should they be waiting for another 10% drop? Get it under 4,000. So I would say no, because you don't know. Is the market going to fall another 10%? Is it going to fall 20%? You sit there all day and you say, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. You don't do that. What you should do consistently is you should just, whether you do it monthly or quarterly or, or however you do it, you should stick to as an investment account, as a long-term investment account. Forget the day trading account. That's a separate account. That's a separate conversation. You do what you want with that. Put your mad money in that account and trade it to your heart's delight. Fine, in and out, in and out, in and out. But if you're talking about an investment account for a long-term wealth generation and growth, no, you wanna you wanna open up an account, you wanna start allocating money and put it away, and you wanna just all cost average, but you wanna keep it the same. So whether it's a monthly contribution, you wanna keep putting it away, you wanna keep as long as you're buying the names that you like. Now, when you're first starting out, when you don't have a ton of money, you're going you're gonna to start by maybe buying broad ETFs that give you broad exposure. But once you start to accumulate more money, 40, 50, 60, 100, $200,000, you may want to get more specific and say, I really want to own individually Apple or individually Tesla. And then you start reallocating some of that money. But you have to stick to the plan. you got to design the plan. you got to be able to stick to the plan. you got to understand what you own and why you own it. And unless the fundamental story for that stock has changed, there would be no reason to blow it out, even if it trades off 15 or 20 Look, Apple just traded down 15% over the last week and a half or two, 18%, whatever it was. It's 18%. Does that mean you're going to sell your Apple? Absolutely not. Back up the truck and buy some more because you should as a long-term investor. Doesn't mean blow, take it all and put it into Apple. Be consistent in the way you do it. So it's X amount of dollars every month, whether it's $500, $200, $1,000, dollars $5,000, whatever the number is, keep it the same every month and stick to your plan. When the stock sells off, you're going to buy it at cheaper prices. Does it sell off 10%? Maybe it only sells off 9% and then it rallies back. And if you say, well, I waited for the 10% move, guess what? You missed it by 1%. It's ridiculous. So if you're a long-term investor, you've got 30 or 40 or 50 years to go. What are you worried about? You shouldn't be. You should be the one, that, that age category should be the one to say, I am in. There's never been a better place than equities and U.S. equities and the U.S. market has been, has been a, a huge wealth generator for millions of Americans, but they have to stick to the plan. And, and do you believe that even in the situation we're in right now, even with the uncertainty about Fed, the, the massive treasury debt accumulation, the budget deficits, do you still believe that? I believe that for the I believe that for the younger investor. Now for me, again, now I'm 62. So what I'm doing with more money that I keep adding to the account is I'm being a little bit more cautious because I'm only 62. I'm at the I'm on the 17th hole. Right? I could have 10 years, I could have 20 years. I don't know, but you're only you're only 38. You still have at least 30 or 35 or 40 years to go. You've got much more time than I do. So for me, while I'm not out of the market, 
I might be just being, for me, a little bit more cautious right now because of my age, not because I don't like the market. I haven't sold anything that I own. I still own it, right? Last week when Apple sold down 18%, I bought more Apple, right? But I, but I do have a larger, I will be honest, I do have a larger cash position at the moment just because of where I am on the life cycle scale, not because I don't want to be in the market. I'm still in the market. I have not sold a thing. Cash, cash, or like treasuries or CDs? Or no. So for me, uh, I got mine in a, in a Fidelity government money market fund. It's paying me 5.1%. It's completely liquid. It's not, it's not a two, it's not a three month, a six month, a two year. It's completely liquid, yet I'm still getting 5.1%. So why would I tie it up in a two year or even a six month? Why would I do that? Because what happens if in two months the market, the market pulls back 30%? And some stocks pull back 40 or 50%. And I want that cash to be able to put to work. If it's in a six-month treasury, I can't get it unless I sell the treasury, right? Potentially lose money. I don't want to do that. So I can, I can leave mine in, in, in a cash equivalent, which is a government money market fund that's paying me 5%. Kenny, appreciate the time today. So, so many good conversations. We could keep going, but ah, there's so much. But just tell us. Where can we find, where can the viewers find more if they want to read your insights? I, I, you have so much. you got the Twitter, the Substack, the, the website. Where, where is everything for Kenny? Well, the daily note that I write, that I actually, I write it as a note, and then I turn it into a video, appears on my Substack. So it's just kennypolkari.substack.com. You can go there and sign up for it, and you'll get the daily note, and you'll get the, the daily video version. You'll also find it, I republish it to my Twitter, both the, the written and the video version. I put it on my LinkedIn, both the written and the video version. Um, so yeah, you can, you can find me all over the place. Kenny, thanks for, thank you so much for joining me, spending some time with me today. It's a pleasure, Eric. I really enjoyed this. Let's do this again. Of course. I know a lot of you are watching this and thinking, maybe I need to get some financial help to figure out how to invest in your future. And now look, if you're already working with somebody that you trust, excellent. That's wonderful. They can help get your finances and investments on track. Stick with them. Keep working together. But if you're not sure if you have the right person or if you don't have anybody at all helping you, you can certainly connect with us. Consider scheduling a consultation with a financial advisor that Wealthion endorses. This is completely no strings attached. You'll see the short form on Wealthion.com. It only takes a few seconds and it's totally free to have these consultations. And there is no, absolutely no commitment to work with these advisors. Wealthion provides this as a free public service. They look to help as many people as possible. If you've enjoyed this conversation and like this video of Kenny and me, please show your support by hitting that like button and subscribing below. Everybody, thanks so much for watching.